1871, a young medical student picked up a book that would change his life. You see, he was anxious about taking his final exam. He was looking for a distraction, and he found a distraction. He found a distraction in the words of the British philosopher Thomas Carlyle. As the student flipped through the pages, he couldn't shake the feeling of dread about his upcoming test. But then he read this. Our main business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. These 21 words, I counted them, there are 21, were enough to shake William Osler out of his jittery state and decide that instead of worrying, he needed to focus on today. William Osler, by the way, went on to become a very famous physician. Actually, he was a part of the team that founded Johns Hopkins Medical School. Um, most medical students, most doctors know who he is. And he determined that he needed to focus on what he could do now, rather than focusing on what could happen tomorrow. He needed to focus all of his energies on what he could achieve today that would help get him closer to his final goal of becoming a doctor. Well, 30 years later, he would address the graduating class of medical students at Yale University with this piece of advice. Live in daytight compartments. Well, put into practice, this advice brings the solution to thousands of problems. It's quite simple, isn't it? Live in daytight compartments. But it's not easy. Why not? Well, according to Matthew Killingsworth and Daniel Gilbert, two psychologists who did this study, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in the present moment. Can any of you relate to that? I can relate to that. Studies show that we're depressed about the past and we're worried about the future. That we're distracted, that we're frustrated, and that we live our lives overwhelmed. Can I get an amen? Yeah. We are half present half of the time, which essentially means we're living half lives. We can't do that. We can't continue to live that way. The only way to be fully alive is to be fully present. And the only way to be fully present is, if you were paying attention, to live in daytight compartments. Now, this isn't just a good idea. This is a God idea. Check this out. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. But look how many times God told us this. Give us today our daily bread. Matthew 6.11 Take up your cross daily. Luke 9.23 This is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. Be glad in the day. Psalm 118 His mercies, God's mercies are new every morning. Lamentations 3, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians 4, don't worry about tomorrow. Matthew 6, I could go on, but I think you get it, right? I've heard it said, you probably have too, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. Our job is not to whine 
about the day. Our job is to win the day. Now, I don't know what goal you're chasing. I don't know what difficulty you're facing. I don't know what habit you're trying to build or what habit you're trying to break, but I do know how you will succeed one day at a time, just as God says. You have to first win the day, and then you have to get up and do it all over again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. That's how this works. And when you do it two days in a row, guess what? You've got a winning streak going. And if you keep going, guess what you'll find? You'll find the abundance for which God has designed you, and oh yeah, you'll be on the road to sanctification. So, Again, officially, good morning and welcome to Hammock Street Church. We are so thankful that you're here with us today on site, here with us today online. We're glad you, you joined us. We, we just celebrated Easter. I hope you had the opportunity to be a part of that. It's the holiest day on the Christian calendar. And we did an Easter series leading up to it, Against All Odds, and we took a few weeks to look at how Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, fulfilled the prophecies that were given to us in the Hebrew Bible that foretold the identity of the Messiah as well as the activity of the Messiah. Now, if you're unable to join us, you can go check it out on YouTube, on our website, hammockstreetchurch.com. Anyway, we ended on Easter morning with a call to action. Two, acting as God's ambassadors. We're all called to be God's ambassadors. To live the lives that God has called us to live. To live lives that reflect God's love and his command for us to do likewise. Loving him, loving each other, loving our enemies, and then making disciples. Now we noted that if we could just do that, that simple act of loving, God would use our lives to attract the lost to the truth about Jesus. Well, Today, we're starting a new series, and this series is aimed at helping us as followers of Jesus to better order our lives so that we can effectively and enthusiastically live the John 10.10 abundant lives. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, so that we can live the abundant lives for which God has created us. The series we're calling Win the Day. If you want to change your life, you have to change your story. So here's what we're going to be doing for the next seven weeks. We're going to be talking about the way that God's word needs to inform our lives so that we can live abundantly and fulfill God's calling on our life. Now, the series is partially based on a book by a pastor by the name of Mark Batterson, who did a really good job organizing the approach that will help the people of God achieve all that God has created them for. This morning, we're going to start off by learning how to flip the script. That's what we're going to talk about today, but first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the week that you've given us. Thank you for the celebration of Easter. Thank you for the opportunity to continue to move forward here where you've put us, where you've placed us. Thank you for the opportunity to serve as your representatives, your ambassadors to our world. God, as we continue on this morning and we look at your word and talk about its implications on our lives, we ask that you would use it to transform our hearts and minds and to draw us closer to you. God, we thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way that we look at things, the way that we look at the world has a profound impact 
not only upon the way that we live in the world, but also upon whether or not we thrive in the world. Now, for the followers of Jesus, there's no reason that we shouldn't be thriving. There's no limit to the power of the God to whom we're connected. As the Apostle Paul told the church in Ephesus, God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or even think according to the power that works in us. That's a powerful God. The question is, do we believe it? Do we believe that's true? And if we believe that's true, why do we struggle to live it out? Well, here are a few ideas. Did you know studies have shown that over 75% of New Year's resolutions fail within the first month? I think people recognize that. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm going to suggest that it's mostly because we're looking at the world incorrectly. We just read about the God to whom we're connected, the God who created us, the God who is with us always, this God who has unlimited power, and he works it in and through us. And what are the limits of unlimited power? Anybody? Bueller? Yeah, there aren't any limits. God's power is unlimited. And if God's power is unlimited and we're experiencing a lack of power, who done it? Yeah, we done it. We're holding ourselves back from achieving the triumphs for which we've been created. And why is that? Because we live lives of puny faith and self-defeatism. It's a hard truth, but I recognize it about myself. Maybe you have too. We sense God's calling, but then we sabotage ourselves. We do that primarily by thinking about the challenges that we face in year-long timelines. And when we think in year-long timelines, we can't help but be overwhelmed. When you think of something over a year, you think, how am I ever going to do this? I have tried to learn to speak Spanish so many times but I keep saying, when am I going to be fluent? And not, when will I remember the particular verb I'm supposed to remember? I feel like quitting before I even start. And that's not the way God has directed us to live. Instead, God has made it quite clear that if we'll listen to him and, and put him daily in the center of our lives, as well as in the center of our understanding of the world around us, he will not only show up, but he'll show off. And he'll show off in ways that'll be nothing short of amazing. So where do we start? Well, how about this? If you want to change your life, you have to change your story. In other words, we have to flip the script. So let me explain what that means. We're going to start with the field of cybernetics, not cybergenics, okay? Cybernetics. What is that? It's the scientific study of self-governing, self-regulating systems. Cybernetic theory actually was first conceptualized by Greek philosopher, by the Greek philosopher Plato, as the study of self-governance by people. Now, in the science of cybernetics, there are two kinds of change, and this is where we're focusing regarding that. Two kinds of change that can occur in any closed system. First-order change and second-order change. Now, first-order change is behavioral change. It refers to doing something. So that's a change that happens, you do something differently. For example, if you're trying to lose weight, eating less, exercising more, that's what you need to do in order to lose weight. And first order change can result in a fix, but it's a quick fix. But then 
There's second order change. First order change is behavioral, do something differently. Second order change is conceptual. Now the true power, God's power, lies in second order change. See, whether we realize it or not, we tend to live our lives as human doings. We exist day to day doing the things that we feel that we need to do in order to survive. But doing, as we just saw, is the realm of first order change. And if we want a different result in life, well, we typically just try to do certain things differently. But God has created us to be not human doings, but human beings. Now, being is the realm of second order change. That's the way God designed us. You know that before God created man, God envisioned man. Watch this. This is pretty interesting when you think of it that way. Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's God talking essentially among the people in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's talking to himself. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Man, they, notice how he goes to the plural because it's man, male, and female. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So before creating man and woman, before doing, God communicating within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, conceptualized. He changed the way of thinking. Conceptualized the being that would be made in the image of God, but that would exercise lordship over the rest of creation. So as a result, we don't only just bear God's image, we are God's idea. We are God's workmanship. We are unique expressions of God's, let's call it, imagination. And to see yourself as anything less than that is to believe a lie. There has never been, there will never be anyone like you. But don't miss this. Your being is not a testament to you. It's not about you. Your being is a testament to the God who created you. So while your doing habits might be useful as external exercises that maybe increase your proficiency or your productivity, like practicing your scales in music or practicing your skills in whatever it is you like to do, and those external habits, of course, will pay dividends, but the biggest return on investment will come from your being habits, from those internal habits that no one sees, because it is your internal monologue, your internal understanding about yourself that will help you flip the script. According to researchers, we have roughly 60,000 thoughts daily, and about 80% of those thoughts are negative. God says that's a problem. Proverbs 23, 7, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts have a psychological and physiological effect. They affect your brain and they affect your physical body. Your thoughts actually have the power to lower your blood pressure. You ever do that when you're getting ready to go to the doctor and you have a, an exam? And so you start thinking, okay, calm down. Okay, take a few breaths. Get that blood pressure down. I don't want to see it. 
Your thoughts can slow your pulse. Your thoughts can actually boost your immunity. Or they can do the exact opposite. The battle is won or lost in your mind. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are far more important than the situations in which we find ourselves. Understanding that allows us to flip the script. I want to talk about the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, his story is found in Genesis. We, we went through Genesis or Joseph's story not too, too long ago. But Joseph's story kind of shows us how this works. Now, as a background, the story of Joseph makes up about the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. So as a review, recall that Joseph was the 11th of the 12 sons of our patriarch, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Joseph was a teenager, he had a dream. He had a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. Remember, he was a, almost the youngest of the brothers. There was one younger. But he said, said to his older brothers, you know what? I just had a dream that one day you guys are going to bow down to me. That was a mistake. He probably shouldn't have told his brothers about the dream. Why? Well, they went ahead and kidnapped him. Then they faked his death. They told his father that he was dead. And then they sold him into slavery. They seem nice, don't they? Life for Joseph went from bad to worse. After being left for dead, he was sold into slavery. He ended up in prison for a crime he didn't commit. That's pretty horrible, isn't it? If anybody could have developed a lifelong worldview as a victim, if anyone could have developed an internal victim narrative, it was Joseph. We probably would have said, yeah, I get that. But that wasn't the narrative, that wasn't the worldview that Joseph adopted for himself. While he was in prison, he was presented with the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Remember Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And so pleased was Pharaoh with Joseph's dream interpretation that Pharaoh put his signet ring on Joseph's finger, indicating that Joseph worked with and for the Pharaoh and had this power over everyone. And the Pharaoh made Joseph the second in command over all of Egypt. And then, 13 years, you're going through a bad month, you're going through a bad year, 13 years after selling Joseph into slavery, his brothers showed up in Egypt and they came knocking on the door because they were begging for food as a result of a famine. Well, this caused Joseph's dream to come true as we see in Genesis 43. Joseph's brothers knelt low and paid homage to him. Okay, he dreamt, you're going to bow down to me. And indeed, 13 years later, they bowed down to him. Now, imagine what Joseph must have been thinking and feeling at the time. The vision that he had had at 17 years old, the vision from God that had guided his entire life, notwithstanding his kidnapping, his enslavement, his imprisonment, the vision that appeared virtually impossible when he had it, was fulfilled in that exact moment. And at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, when Joseph was in a position to look back on his life, to look back upon all the ups and downs and all the pain and suffering and all the twists and turns, because he never lost sight of whom God told him he was, Joseph said to his brothers, his brothers who were responsible for virtually all of that tragedy in his life. Here's what Joseph said to them in Genesis 50, 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival 
of many people. Because he never lost his faith in God. Because he never stopped believing, Joseph never saw himself as a victim. His internal narrative never wavered. And God used that and worked through him in a mighty way. So I ask you this, would you like to have that kind of faith? Would you like to have that kind of relationship with God? Would you like to flip the script of your life and experience the same kind of abundance as Joseph? Well, here's what you need to do. If you want to flip the script, you have to accomplish three things. The first thing you have to accomplish is you have to know your name. The second is you have to fix your focus. And the third is you have to change your story. All right, so let's get going. You have to know your name. Now, more than a quarter of a century ago, Charles Horton Cooley, the founder of the American Sociological Association, said this. This is interesting. Think about it. I am not what I think I am. And I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. It works, though. Cooley called this the looking glass self. And it refers to the way that we base our sense of self on how we believe others see us. So essentially, we're letting other people narrate our story. Essentially, it's living our life according to their expectations. But that's not the way for the people of God. Back to the story of Joseph. Notwithstanding Joseph's circumstances or Joseph's life experiences, Joseph knew who he truly was. When Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt in order to beg for help so they could survive the famine in Israel, after taunting them a bit, and Joseph does taunt them a bit, and I kind of feel like he was well within his rights to taunt them a bit. Then he reveals his identity to them in Genesis 45.3. He said, I am Joseph. And now we read that, and we might be tempted to go, duh. He knows his own name, big deal. But it's actually more profound than that. You see, when Pharaoh made Joseph his second in command, he didn't just give Joseph his signet ring. He gave Joseph a new identity. The Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name. Zephenath Paneah is what he called him, which is a lot harder to say than Joseph. And it would have been so easy for Joseph to just think of himself as an Egyptian. Listen, my people, they rejected me. They got rid of me. They threw me out. So I may as well be an Egyptian. Because that's what his circumstances had decided for him. It would be very easy for Joseph to forget the person that God made him to be. And if you allow it, our culture will name you too. And it will label you. And it will define you. And cancel culture might even chew you up and spit you out. But to avoid that, you need to know who you are, and more importantly, whose you are. It should be to whom you belong, but it sounds better when you mess up the grammar a little bit. You need to know your name in Christ, because in Christ, you're blessed, you're chosen, you're blameless, you're adopted by the Heavenly Father, you're redeemed by Jesus Christ, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and you're stamped with the image of God. Simply put, who God says you are is who you are. If you want to flip the script, you need to know your name. Second, you have to fix your focus. The ancient prophet from Tatooine, Qui-Gon Jinn said, your focus determines your reality. Before you email me, actually, the Apostle Paul said this first. 
in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Okay? Focus on these things. If you want these things to be your reality, focus on these things. Your focus will always determine your reality. If you're looking for an excuse, you will always find an excuse. But if you're looking for something to be grateful for, you'll always find it as well. Joseph could have played the victim card. He could have also played the vengeance card and even the score with those rotten brothers of his, but he did neither. Why? Because he flipped his script. His focus was fixed on God. Dr. Martin Seligman, the former president of the American Psychology Association, so we've now seen sociology and psychology, said that we all have an explanatory style. Your explanatory style is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. I have a friend, and his explanatory style is always to cast the blame somewhere else. Always. Nothing is ever, ever, ever his fault. And it's those explanations, not the experience themselves, it's those explanations that break us. So what was Joseph's explanatory style? Genesis 50-20. You intended to harm me, But that isn't where I'm going to focus. God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. That's what I'm going to focus on. So how can we apply this principle in our own lives? Well, got a pretty good example out there. Take 2020. Remember this image? It's a dumpster fire. The official picture of 2020. But as long as we lament about the disaster that was 2020, we will experience no blessing from it. But what if instead of seeing it as a dumpster fire, we look at 2020 as a refiner's fire? Now, the things that come out of refiner's fire, like gold, like silver, are always more pure, always more precious, always more valuable. Why? Because they've been refined by the touch of the master's hand. It's all about our perception. It's all about our focus. So how do we fix our focus? By, as the writer of Hebrews said, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Remember when Peter got out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the dark of the night? That took a ton of faith. I mean, how did he do that? It's impossible. Do you remember how he did it? As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus... Peter could walk on water. That's what following Jesus is all about, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And what happened to Peter when he lost his focus, when he took his eyes off of Jesus and started focusing on the wind and the waves that were surrounding him and engulfing him? Well, that's when he started to sink. And that's when we start to sink as well. We need to learn not to see the world as it is. We need to remember to see the world as we are. Your understanding of who you are in Jesus is more important than your experiences. So I encourage you, get to know Jesus. How do you get to know Jesus? I gave you a whole book, okay? You want to get to know Jesus, start off by rereading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That tells us the things that Jesus said and did. That's how you get a sense of who Jesus is. You read about the things that he said and did. And then read or reread the rest of the New Testament. 
That explains the way the church grew and spread and the way that Jesus' words were put into practice. Then you can read or reread the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. That's the story of God's creating and choosing and protecting and promising to redeem his own people. You see, when you get to know God's word, you get to know Jesus. And then you'll be equipped to turn your focus on him. As the sneaker company says, just do it. When we fix our focus, we can flip our script, which brings us finally to number three. You have to change your story. According to a study done at Emory University, the best predictor of a child's emotional well-being is not getting your child into a great school. And it's not giving your child a bunch of hugs and kisses, though that is, of course, good too. It's not knowing that your child has read a bunch of books or watched a bunch of the right shows. But interestingly, the number one indicator of emotional well-being is that a child knows his or her family history. That's weird. Why is that? Well, because our family story becomes our story. All of us are born into somebody else's story. My children were born into my story. I was born into my parents' story. My parents were born into my grandparents' story. Our family story serves as our Genesis story. But when we become followers of Jesus, we get a new story. Scripture, the Bible, God's word becomes our script. The Bible becomes our backstory. And when we're faithful, our lives become the rest of the story, which we will pass on to our children. Our lives essentially become a continuation of God's story. This is how it works. First, you surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus. You can do that right here. You could do that right now. When you understand that notwithstanding your innate sinfulness, Jesus loves you anyway. And out of his love for you, he's made a way for you to be connected to God forever by paying for all of your sins on the cross and then coming back from the dead. You can turn from your natural self. You can make Jesus your Lord and Savior. That will give you an eternal life, both here on earth and in heaven with God, eternally connected to Jesus. And then when you've done that, when you've given Jesus complete, let's call it editorial control over your life, he'll begin writing the continuation of his story, that's where you get the word history from, in you and through you, changing your story for eternity. How do you go about doing that? Well, this is interesting. And this will explain a few things you probably will remember from Scripture. Jewish practice in Jesus' day gives us this template. In Judaism, those who followed a rabbi, those who followed were called Talmudim, they had four responsibilities. To memorize the rabbi's words, to take on the rabbi's yoke, to imitate the rabbi's ways, and to disciple other people to do likewise. So... First, they memorized their rabbi's words. That's where the Gospels come from, okay? They took the words of the rabbi Jesus and they wrote them down. That's the rabbi's words. Second, they understood and adopted their rabbi Jesus' unique interpretation of Scripture. That's called the rabbi's yoke. Remember when Jesus says, my yoke is, my yoke is light, my yoke is easy? That's what he's talking about. That's, we see what the rabbi's yoke is, what Jesus' interpretation of Scripture is on the Sermon on the Mount or in the Olivet Discourse. 
Third, they're called to imitate the rabbi's life. Put a pin in that. We'll come back in a second. And fourth, they disciple others the way that they themselves were discipled. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 saying, follow me as I follow Christ. All right? So now go back to the third responsibility, imitating. Now for our purposes, imitation is the key to adopting Jesus' way. We imitate Jesus' way by immersing ourselves in Jesus. So we need to love like Jesus loved. We need to pray like Jesus prayed. We need to treat people like Jesus treated people. And if we do that long enough, guess what? We'll become more like Jesus, which is the ultimate goal of discipleship and the ultimate way to change our story, to flip the script and become part of Jesus' story. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. If we want to conquer fear, if we want to vanquish worry, if we want to live a life of abundance that blesses us and others, and most importantly, brings glory to God, we'll need to flip the script. Because when we can replace the tyranny of the overwhelming world around us, when we can replace that with the all-encompassing understanding of God's total and complete sovereignty over it, then we can begin to understand the part that God has called us to play, each of us. And then we'll be able to flip the script from a tragedy starring our lives to a triumph starring Jesus, through whom we can perpetually win the day. Amen? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to be together, to embark upon a new series, to learn how we can live this life of faith in a way that pleases you and impacts the world around us. God, we're so excited to see the challenges and the blessings you will put before us this week and tomorrow and today. And God, we ask that we have the ability to filter out all the noise and flip the script so we can win the day. God, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.